writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. One of the most challenging parts of becoming a published writer is creating an audience for your writing. It's called platform building. Growing an audience from a few to many doesn't happen overnight. It demands perseverance, creativity, and figuring out a mode that suits your gifts and personality. And it also considers where your audience is most likely to find you. Dave and I can attest to that. Dave built a platform through his fly fishing podcast, Two Guys in a River, and I built a platform through Instagram, McGillicuddy, for my vintage business. Producing a podcast and building a social media presence are two of the more common ways people grow their followings, which we will discuss more in depth in this episode. But there are other often overlooked ways to build a following that we want to discuss today as well. After this episode, we hope you have a clearer sense of what type of platform building suits your personality, your interests, and will connect you best with your ideal audience. But before we get started, Dave, let's back up and talk about where we've made progress this past week. Dave, where have you made progress? This is so suburban, but a year ago, we took down all these junipers that were in our yard, these old junipers. And uh, actually, my son, Corey, took them out. It was so much work. Oh, my gosh. But then the question is, what do you replace it with? So we decided we weren't going to just hire it out where you all of a sudden you just replace it with all these bushes and flowers and, you know, perennials. And so we, we just waited. We got a couple of hostas. And, and then recently, we started thinking more about it. So just slowly and incrementally, we've been building up this this area in the front of our yard. So it's about half done, but we've made progress. So uh, my suburban yard is looking good. <laughs> in the Midwest, for people who don't live in the Midwest, those juniper bushes are ubiquitous and really, really ugly. The undergrowth is unbelievable. You start to dig them out and you realize, okay, what I thought was going to take a couple hours is probably going to take a couple days. Yeah, like you're digging to China. My husband dug up ours probably about, gosh, about 10 to 15 years ago. And then our friends had some that they needed help digging and it was each time a grueling process. So congratulations to you and your son for doing that. So well, are you doing perennial flowers then? Or are you doing some bushes? What did you do? Yeah, accommodation. Yeah. There's some hostas, some hydrangeas, some different grasses that we're putting in there. There's some daisies that are perennials. and mm -hmm. And then there's some annuals that we're putting in. But again, we don't want it all taken up with flora and fauna. We just don't want it packed in there. So we're trying to do it. I wouldn't call it strategic or strategically, but we're trying to do it more thoughtfully and over time as opposed to paying a big mm -hmm. chunk of money and then going, ah, did we really like that? So Dave, that's called slow design. And it's actually a perfect link to what I'm going to be talking about for my progress of the week, which is I've had this 
sofa, this antique sofa sitting in my basement for almost three years. And I got it free from Facebook Marketplace and it was a disaster. It sat in my basement, but I wanted to reupholster it in a striped fabric. So for about three years, I've been trying to find the perfect fabric and save enough money to get it reupholstered because it's very expensive. And so this year we finally did it. And it came, it arrived when I had COVID and the boys moved it into our living room. But then we had this other sofa, this old sofa from about 20 years ago. And we were going to put it into the basement because it's a sleeper sofa, but we couldn't get it down our narrow stairway because we live in a bungalow and everything's very tight. And so my husband said, let's put it in your office. And so I agreed to that, which I guess is progress because I really didn't want it in my office, but it was something that he thought would be practical because it's a sleeper sofa and it's, it's comfortable. He's attached to it. So I conceded. And then everything was in just complete disarray for like a week and a half because I had COVID and I couldn't deal with all the stuff that we had to move around because we took out a piece of furniture and I had all this piles of stuff. And so I guess the progress is last week, I finally got things in order. The office is kind of coming together, but now I want like bookcases, like flanking the sofa, the sofa is behind me right there. So progress, which is leading to more projects, which will hopefully lead to more progress. (laughs) So to me, progress is always throwing stuff out. So I would have made a big case for throwing out that old sofa. That's true. I have to say though, that it is very comfortable. And we actually do have a practical reason for keeping it now because it is a sleeper sofa. So if we are in a pinch and somebody needs to stay with us, we can use it. But yeah, I, I agree. I was really ready to just throw it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good that somebody puts the brakes on it. Cause I would probably throw everything. I'm, I'm one of those people that throw it out and then go a year later, Hey, where was that? Okay. I'll go out and buy that again. Just drives my wife nuts. So good job. Well, thank you. All right. Well, I'm excited for this episode today, Dave. We talk a lot about platform building and road trippers and with writers who are wanting to publish their work. Part of writing a book and publishing your work is having a platform through which you can sell your book. Because as we say over and over again, you are responsible for selling your book. The publisher, if you go with a traditional publisher, likely will do very little. So today we want to highlight five different ways you can build a platform. And the first one that we're going to discuss is blogging. Dave, blogging has been around for a very long time. Do you remember when blogging came onto the scene? Was it like the early 2000s? I think it was maybe early, like 2003, 2004. There were probably the first blog may have been earlier than that, but it's just been a great way for people to build a following online, those who write consistently. And even today, some of the great, like for example, in financial services, like in VC investments in business and VC meaning venture capital investments and technology, the blog, the long form blog is still a place where people go to, to get really good research and and to find thought leaders. So blogging today is ubiquitous. Everybody's got a blog and you probably are saying, why are we even thinking about talking about blogging? But it's still, I mean, after all these years, it's still an important thing to do. If you're a writer, let's say, and you are writing a memoir and as you're writing the book, one idea for building your platform would be to start a blog. And what would you suggest people writing a memoir 
starting a blog write about? Would it be different pieces from the memoir, things that they're thinking about, or what, what would it be just observations in their daily life? Like how would you see a blog working for somebody in that situation? So if you're writing a memoir, let's say, obviously you could take chunks of the memoir and throw it into a blog, but that's not really what the blog is meant to do. So if you're writing a memoir, there's some meta theme that you're writing about. Like, for example, if perhaps it's about women's rights or it's about abuse or maybe spiritual abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse, or there are these themes in your blog. There's a meta theme. If you're writing something that has that has legs to it, there, there will be one major meta idea, but there's also these sub themes. So you could start a blog and just start talking about these different themes that are in your memoir. And it can be very, very personal. You wake up one day, you have a thought, you see a bird. Uh, I'm being facetious here, but <laughs> it doesn't have to be long form. We always say that blogs are probably, I mean, there are blogs that are a paragraph or two paragraphs. And then there's blogs that are 10,000 words. So, I mean, there's this, this big range of what a blog can be in terms of length. Often though, it's probably between 300 and 600 words. That's called short form writing. You can be paying attention to current events as they relate to the big themes in your life that you're writing on in your memoir. Maybe somebody shared a story and it's fresh top of mind. These are the things that often you blog about and maybe they'll make their way into your book or maybe they're just related. They're adjacent to the theme, like you said, that you are particularly interested in. The key is, is I think blogging is best when it's, when it's personal because you connect with the person behind it, right? And I remember when blogs first came onto the scene and I, I, you had that bookmark function and I had about six to 10 blogs that I would bookmark and I would go check in on every day. You know, what have they said new? Because I just liked following them, their personalities. I liked their take on the world. So I think it's important if you're going to start a blog to have a take on the world, not be generic have a voice, be somebody that people want to read. You do have to have a take on the world. You just yeah. do. Yeah. And that's why people read and keep coming back to the blog. So again, if you're writing a memoir, or even if you're writing fiction, you can do this. You can have these ideas that perhaps underline some of your fiction, some of the ideas that are deep within your fiction that you can write about. So I think blogging is still something that you should consider. As we are going to go through these five, we should remember that you can't do it all. You just can't. So what we're not saying is that you should do all five of these. I think what we're saying is you should pick one and then you need to fall on the sword. You need to be consistent and you need to do it on a regular basis. One of the benefits of blogging is that there's this component called SEO. Of course, you probably are all familiar with that search engine optimization. And if you post regularly and are very attentive to keywords, there is a way to gain traction in search with Google because Google loves, loves new frequent content. They love it when you use keywords. And so people can actually find you, especially if you think like the reader, like what would my reader be interested in and how would they search for this topic? If you can think as the reader thinks, you'll be able to 
create titles and hooks and keywords that people would use to search for the topic. So a good example of this was uh, with Journey 66, which is our business. We had built a YouTube channel and we just called it Journey 66. And we weren't getting a lot of traction. And so one of our team members, Allison, went through and thought, okay, how can we get more traction in terms of SEO? One thing we did was we changed it from Journey 66 to our full name, which is Journey 66 Writing for Publication. That simple thing changed our ability to simply even pull up the YouTube channel. So search engine optimization is really important, and, but it's only important if you're blogging consistently. And so blogging consistently is the single biggest thing that's important as we talk about blogging. I'll throw into this category vlogging, which is video blogging, specifically on YouTube because Google loves YouTube content and you can use your introductions as a way to use keywords and your titling also as a way to use keywords. So if you're more of a video person rather than a writer, YouTube vlogging is another way to create an audience. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Dave, one thing that you've always said to me, and I will say this out here as a caveat, or actually as encouragement, is that when you're on social media and your primary platform is on social media, like mine is, it can be dangerous because the social media platforms, in my case, Instagram owns your content, right? And if Instagram shuts down, your content goes away. If it's hacked by somebody, it goes away. And so there's huge value in having a blog because you own that content and you can create backup files and you're not dependent on somebody else. So I still haven't started a blog of my own, but that's always in the back of my mind of how dangerous it is to only invest in social media. We're going to get to this next, not this next point, but the other one about social media. You have picked one single platform and you've done that well. And I think that's the lesson. I think you, you've decided not to blog, but you, you decided to post on Instagram. So there are pluses and minuses, but it, it's one way you've said, okay, here's where I can have an impact. Here's where I can grow my following. Here's where my audience is. And so you've done that really well. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And just finally, on this topic of blogging, there can be integration with social media and blogging. So say you're really committed to blogging, but you're also on social media. Maybe you have a few followers or a few hundred. You can use social media as a way to direct people to your content on your blog. And obviously there's a sharing aspect on social media. So you may pick up a few. So while you may not be primarily involved in social media, it is a way to create some interest in your blog if you do it somewhat regularly. So anything else you would add to that? Blogging is just one of those great ways to build your platform and it's not for everyone. So right. let's go to our next one. Our next one is podcasting, Dave, which you know a lot about because you have started several podcasts and just like blogging about 20 years ago was ubiquitous. Podcasting is now everywhere. Everybody wants to start a podcast. And they don't really necessarily know what is involved with it. They think that they can just do it, but it really comes back again to consistency for one. Like, can you, is this something that you can really commit to? And you have to do it as we found out every week, every other week, there has to be a rhythm so people can expect content. There's nothing worse than listening to a podcast 
like maybe like a six episode podcast and it being done. And then they take this very long break. And then you, you're like, when are they going to come back? And then you forget about it as you're waiting for it to come back. So if you want ongoing exposure to an audience that doesn't yet exist as your own, but you want to expand your audience, you need to do it regularly. Dave, what would you add to that? So podcasting is now everywhere. So I started a podcast back in 2015. It was a fly fishing podcast, and it became one of the largest podcasts in the fly fishing industry. Now it's not hundreds and hundreds of thousands because of subscribers because that's fly fishing. But I think it ended up being like number three or number four in terms of size. We ended up with like 10,000 subscribers. But it's something that we probably wouldn't be able to do now because back then there was only a few podcasts. So podcasts, they are ubiquitous, as you say, and they're on the rise, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do one. And so your point about if you decide to do a podcast, just like blogging, you need to commit to it. You need to say, I'm going to do it every week, or I'm going to do it every two weeks, or even if it's once a month, there is that expectation that does build a following. And that is so important. So I will say this, though, when, when you're thinking about building a, or creating a podcast, you tend to focus on the technical things like what do I need to do? How do I record it? What equipment do I need? And that's important. And you can simply Google that, right? There's all this information now. It's more difficult to find is help on what kind of podcast should I, should I create? So there's, there's different kinds of podcasts. So the key is your editorial angles. Too many people simply use podcasting as a means to interview. Like they, they say, we're going to do Joe Rogan. If you've heard of Joe Rogan, he's the master of the two-hour interview. And, and I personally have created three podcasts, and one was a complete failure. There was no chemistry between me and the other podcaster. But there are different models. Like the fly fishing podcast that I did, it was just my friend and me, and we weren't talking about the technical aspects of fly fishing. It was just frickin' frack, right? We were like car talk of NPR radio, two buddies talking about fly fishing. And so it was very unique. All the other podcasts tend to be technical about fly fishing, how to cast, how to find fish. And one was even about partying while they're on the river. There was this podcast it was really, it was about the guys getting together. They would drink while they taught, while they did the podcast and talk about fly fishing. So that, I, I'm, not, I'm not being critical at all. That was a good angle. That's a very specific, niche podcast. The point here is, if you're going to do a podcast, think about how can you make it unique? Is it just going to be you? Are you just going to interview other people? Is it you and someone else? There's just different ways to do podcasts. You and I have grappled a little bit with the format of this podcast since it began. Originally, there was a lot more of just you and me talking, and then we actually began interviewing people. And there wasn't really any rhythm to when we decided to interview people and when we decided to do just the two of us. And we've kind of fallen into this rhythm of you and me, one episode, and then an interview with an expert the next episode. And so it sometimes takes you a while to find the rhythm that works for you or the, the format that works for you, but it, it's worth grappling with. It's worth thinking strategically about even the format of our, of our episode. We tried to include the word of the episode to kind of make it fun. Are we also, when it's just Dave and 
me talking, we talk about where we've made progress. So think about those things that can infuse your podcast with a little bit of personality that people can expect. And those are the things that pe- that make your podcast unique. But back to your point, Dave, it's just not a good idea to wing it, right? You need to have an editorial plan. You need to be thinking ahead of where you want to go with your podcast, thinking about if it's an interview format, who do you want to interview? Who would be a great fit for your podcast? Who would your audience love to hear from? So really think strategically about the editorial plan. And I think that's true with with blogging, but it's even more true with, with podcasting because that might mean adding other voices. And so just the planning part is just so critical. But with both of these, both with blogging and podcasting, most likely you can't do both. I mean, my guess is you have a full-time job if you're writing and you're also writing. And so you're also then trying to build your platform on the side. So our point in all of this is to say, hey, pick one, do it well, be consistent. And so the second one, podcasting, is, is a good fit for many people because sometimes it's easier to do than having to write even more. But whatever you do, be consistent and do it well. Just one final tidbit or a bit of advice. If you don't have the technical skills to edit the podcast, which you will need to do if you want a polished product, then you can actually outsource that. You can find somebody pretty easily on an outsourcing platform called like Fiverr. So if you don't feel comfortable with the technical aspect, you can always outsource. But of course, that's a little bit of an extra cost. You have to invest some money, but it might be worth it in the long run. All right, that's number two. Number three is social media, which is what everybody thinks of when they think of platform building. When you would say platform building, platform, people just automatically think of social media. So we've got to go here. Let's talk about all the popular ones. We have TikTok, which is hugely popular right now. And that's video driven. You have Instagram, which is still fairly popular. Facebook, it seems to be popular with some. LinkedIn, you have Clubhouse. Clubhouse. So they're just popping up everywhere. And obviously the big ones are probably TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn and Twitter. So as Dave already alluded to, you can't do all of the social media platforms well. I, it just would, it would be exhausting if, if you, cause you're going to have different audiences on each platform. Different people are on different platforms. And I've talked about this so many times before. You're probably sick of it. If you listen, have listened to this podcast from the beginning, but I chose Instagram because it is visually driven and I wanted it to build my, my vintage business, which is visual. So that was a great place for me to find my tribe, to find people who wanted to follow me, people who liked pretty things and like the delivery of pretty things in images. So it made total sense for me to use Instagram. LinkedIn wouldn't have been a good, good fit for that. That's more professionally driven. TikTok, lots of people in my space are now using TikTok. Facebook, probably not a great fit either. So you've got to figure out where your tribe is, as we like to call it, or your ideal audience, and then just throw yourself into it completely and be consistent, as we've said, as with every other type of platform building. Well, anytime you start something new, you don't know what you don't know. And so if you do decide, okay, this platform is where my audience is, and now I have to figure out what content I'm going to put on that platform, excuse me, there's a lot to learn. So you should go into all five of these 
as you're evaluating them and just say, hey, I'm not going to know anything or exactly what I need to know before I launch something. And so you have to learn as you go. And social media is one of those things. I think about where you are now, Melissa, with what you have almost 30,000 followers on, on Instagram. And, but just think about where you started and that you knew very little about it, but you started doing it. And by doing it, you start to learn it. And so I just want to encourage you that if you decide that you're going to go deep into social media, you do have to pick one platform. I really don't think you can do well at everything. And so pick one platform and then really learn what it takes to, to grow a following. And there's so much help on Google right now for everything. There's five steps to growing your Instagram following and five ways for Instagram reels. And there's just so much help. So there's really no excuse for not knowing what to do. I think you just start it and then you start Googling it and you learn on the fly. And people talk about the algorithms on social media and how they're always changing and it's impossible to grow a following. And it is difficult, but that's why you have to stick with it. You have to stay on top of the updates. You have to experiment, right? Right now on Instagram, reels are popular and Instagram favors video over still lives images. So you've got to just experiment and try it out and figure out how to bend to how content is being favored by whatever platform you're using. And you only do that by doing and failure. And then you have a success and you build on the success. But building a platform on social media, is, it's just, it's a long, long road, just as it is with blogging and podcasting. There are very few overnight successes. So consistency matters, having a voice matters, having valuable content that your readers, your readers or your audience actually connects with. All of that is important, just like with podcasting and blogging. All right. Number four, the next type of way that you can build a platform is through speaking. And lots of people, this is already naturally built into your profession. Maybe you have a hobby or an avocation that you spend a lot of time with. And so you're out there, say you're a gardener and you like to give talks on gardening outside of your work and you become known for that. So you, you start to have opportunities to speak and then you get referred to another speaking engagement and suddenly you're out in the world. So speaking is another way to create an audience. Just be sure that when you do do these speaking events that you figure out a way to collect data because your audience really isn't a following until you have that data. You can't continue to speak to them. I guess they could go find you on social media afterwards, but you need to find a way that you can stay in communication with them. Dave, would you add anything to that? We say this for all these channels is that you have to be able to collect email addresses. And so if you're doing regular speaking, if you're doing regular social media postings, if you're doing podcasting or blogging, you should be sending out a regular email. And the only way you can do that is if, in fact, you have the email addresses of people who have raised their hand and said, I would like to hear from you. So if you're doing speaking, then when you go and speak, let's say I remember our friend Nancy, who was a gardener. And she was also in financial services and had written extensively on financial planning and different things. Well, she began to expand 
her network by speaking on gardening in libraries. So one of the things that she did, she would pass around a legal pad and say, listen, if you'd like to receive more information on my gardening tips, sign up and I'll send you a regular email. So that's how you do it. It's very simple. And again, this isn't mass marketing. And so anytime that you're starting any of these things, you're starting out small. You're starting at your, out at your library. You're not starting out at the United Center in Chicago, right? Playing to 10,000, 20,000 fans. That's not how this works. You start really small. And so, but you build over time. And so speaking is one of those things where you, and I like to say this because I did this with my book, Death by Suburb. There are no small places for you to speak. So if you're speaking and there's only five people that show up, you need to speak to those five people, see how many email addresses you can collect, follow up with an email. This isn't a mass marketing project when you're building your following, you're building relationships. So with speaking, I would really encourage you to start small, think small, not think small like don't think big, but think about where you can start. And it's just in these small little places. So Melissa, there was someone that we knew who spoke regularly on cyber safety across the country to educational institutions like schools. And so she would collect data from that, but she started out very small. She started out locally and then she would expand. And now now today she speaks across the country. So if you're a writer, speaking is really a good way to build your platform. I'll add this also. I have a friend who is a speaker and also a blogger, but she wants to expand her reach through speaking. And she joined a writer's group. There are writer's groups out there where you can meet and collaborate with people who want to expand their speaking platforms and you can refer each other. So if you have an in with maybe one group and they're looking for more speakers, they can refer you. So it's a symbiotic relationship. So if you're looking to kind of expand, extend your reach and find more speaking engagements and get feedback on your speaking so your speeches are even better, you might think about joining a speakers group. That might be a way to improve and get started and expand. All right, our fifth and final way to build a platform, and there are probably others that we're not speaking to today, but these are the five primary ones that we identified. It's being a contributor to a specific channel. A couple of weeks ago, we interviewed the literary agent, Miriam Altschuler. She's a New York literary agent. And she was talking about specifically those authors who are working on fiction. They don't necessarily have huge followings on social media. Some people do. Lots of authors do have, especially on Twitter, they have accounts. But She said what she looks for is if these authors have published in other literary magazines, if they're part of writing groups, if they've gone to conferences, if they are engaged with their community in their specific area. So this last one really has to do with engaging with a community that you ultimately could speak to once that book is out. So it has to do with Again, finding a vertical and going into it deep and committing to it and making yourself available to speaking, to participating on boards, to contributing to newsletters and other publications that maybe the associations publish. Dave, what what else would you add to that? We have some writers in our community who do do this and they do it very well. And that was what ultimately got them a book deal. 
I do think you, when you do this, you can't go into a community or into an association to receive. You have to go to give. And so you have to go to contribute. I've been part of associations through the years and I've had the mindset, well, I'm, I'm going to be a part of this and I hope I can write and get exposure. But when you do that, you don't get the exposure that you want. And just recently, in fact, I was a part of an association. They asked me to be part of the communications committee and it was, it was so much work mm -hmm. and I made the decision not to do it. But if I had done that, I would have gotten into the inner circle. So if you're going to make this as your main channel for your platform, then you have to give. You can't just take. I, one of the challenges that we all have is that we know we have to build a platform and we think it's going to be easy, or at least I do. Like when I started podcast for my fly fishing podcast, I thought that it would be instant success. It took us three and a half, four years of publishing every week to build that following. By the end of four and a half years is when we had our largest following. And so it just took a long time. And I think it's the mindset of being a giver and not a taker. And I think what happens, though, as you give over time, then you begin to receive. And so this idea of, of going into a channel or into an association, that means serving on a committee, right? It means helping someone else with something. It's not just about, I want to make sure this is where I can write and people will see me, they'll get exposed to me, they'll buy my book, et cetera. It, you have to begin with the giver's mindset. And that's how you make connections. That's how you deepen relationships, which have this ripple effect, right? Somebody knows you, knows your work, knows you as a good person, and then connects you with somebody else. And suddenly you have this exponential reach that you didn't have before. But I think you're right. It absolutely starts with being generous, giving, not looking to just take. All right, Dave. So those are five ways to build a platform. We have blogging, we have social media, we have podcasting, we have speaking, and we have becoming a contributor to a specific channel. We hope that you have some ideas of where to go next, where you want to fully commit yourself. And we'd love to hear from you if you want to email us at Melissa at journey66.com. All right, before we sign off, Dave, let's do our words of the episode. How about you go first? I like your word today. All right, so I'm not sure I'm saying this correctly, and I've, I've tried to find it online, but it's hard actually to find an audio. It's impetuosity, impetuosity. So it's like the word or related to the word impetuous, and it's this idea of the quality of making rash or arbitrary decisions especially in a forceful manner. So one application would be his impetuosity brought him to the brink of losing everything he owned. Or you might say this, marrying someone who you just met is a form of impetuosity. It's impetuous. So it's this idea of rash, forceful, impulsive decisions and and generally those aren't good in life. So I forget where I got this word. I think it was when I was reading uh, this, this historical biography. So impetuosity is my word. How about you? Well, mine is algorithm. And I simply decided to land on that because we're talking about social media and algorithms. And I guess I never really understood the exact de definition. I just knew it had to do with how 
these social media platforms favor content. So I went and looked up the definition and it is a process or set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem solving operations, especially by a computer. So those algorithms are programmed in the computer and the computer then spits out the way that they're going to prioritize, prioritize content, for instance, in social media. So it was actually the word, I did a little bit of the etymology of the word, and it was formed from algorithm, the system of Arabic numerals, a word that goes back to Middle English and ultimately stems from the name of a ninth century Persian mathematician. And I'm not going to try to say his name because <laughs> I, would, I would botch it. Who did, he did important work in the fields of algebra and numeric systems. So I always like finding out the etymology of the word. So not a very fancy word. It's a word we all use, but I thought it would be good to have an actual definition out there, algorithm. I love that. And the fact that it was a Persian mathematician who it gets traced back to etymologically, that's, that's really awesome. That's a really good word to know because it is used a lot. All right. Well, this was a fun episode, Dave. I hope that people go away with some new nuggets. I think that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.